Matot Masei. We'll begin uh, with this. The common denominator between Matot and Masei um, is certainly this idea that the uh, east bank of the River Jordan, um, the east bank of the Yarden, was going to be settled by Jews. The intention had always been for the Jewish nation to leave Mitzrayim, to leave Egypt, and to settle in Eretz Yisrael, which was the land to which Abraham had been sent and which, in which he had lived and Yitzchak had lived and Yaakov had lived, and the Shavotim, the tribes, had initially lived before such time that they went to, uh, um, that they had gone to Egypt. So the idea was always that the, uh, the, the nation would settle in Eretz Israel. However, things changed. Things changed very dramatically because when Reuven and God arrived on the east bank of the Jordan, they saw the plains of Moab, and suddenly they were exposed to this fantastic setting, which of course for the 40 years that they were in the wilderness they had not seen, uh, they wanted to settle there, and they came with a request, and we've discussed this um, in a previous shir. They came to Moshe Rabbeinu, to Moses, and they requested that they should be able to settle on the east bank of the Jordan. He agreed um, with some reluctance, and eventually those two tribes and half of the tribe of Manasseh settled on the east bank of the Jordan River. Uh, let's begin by looking at, in Bamidbar, Chapter 35, Lamed Hay, uh, Posuk Tes, and the few Psukim that follow. God spoke to Moshe and he said as follows Speak to the Bnei Israel and say to them, You are about to cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan. But before you do that, you shall declare cities to be cities of refuge for you, so that the killer who takes a life unintentionally shall flee there. They shall be cities of refuge for you. Um, why? Uh, to protect the killer from the avenger, so that the killer should not die until he stands before the congregation in judgment. And the cities you shall give shall be six Ari Miklot. Three of these cities you shall place on this side of the Jordan and three of them in the land of Canaan. They shall be the cities of refuge. Livne Yisrael to the Jewish nation. Velager, Velatoishov and to the stranger and to the resident, among them, to Yena, Sheisha Orim Ha'ela, these six cities should be, Lemiklot as a refuge, Lonus Shoma, to flee there, Kol Make Nefesh Bishkoga, any person who may, who have killed someone unintentionally. A very, very interesting law, and this, by the way, is nothing really to do with the Shir, but it's a, it's a point worth mentioning. We have in... Um, in our society, in modern society, and I'm sure that it existed in every society, laws pertaining to those who kill someone unintentionally. We call it manslaughter. 
So there's different types of manslaughter. Um, I would say that what we're referring to here in the Torah is negligent manslaughter. Negligent manslaughter is if somebody um, is doing something which has the potential to be dangerous and they weren't careful enough and as a result of what they were doing, they killed someone. I'll give you an example. The example is going to be this. Imagine I am cleaning my gun, um, as one does, cleaning my gun and a bullet fires out of the gun. And just happens to be that when the bullet fires out of the gun, it hits somebody and kills them. My intention wasn't to kill anyone. I'm not a murderer. However, the gun that was in my hand is a murder weapon. It's a, it's, it's a weapon of killing. It's an instrument of death. And as a result of me not being careful enough in the process of me cleaning my gun, I shot, I pulled the trigger and that bullet went into somebody and killed them. That is called negligent manslaughter. Similarly, texting while driving. Obviously, I never got it. A person doesn't get into their car with the intention of killing someone. But as a result of not focusing on the road, you are in, I hate to say it, a car is an instrument of death, potentially. And by not focusing on what you needed to be focused on when that car was being driven, the car ran someone over and the person died. That's called negligent manslaughter. However, negligent manslaughter in Jewish law isn't considered an Aveira. There's a difference between a crime and an Aveira. So, you know, a crime is, a, is something that you've done which undermines civil society. It may not necessarily be an Aveira. So what is the consequence for somebody who is engaged in an act which undermines society, but which is not considered an Aveira, it's not a sin? So in this particular instance, we have an interesting anomaly, or an interesting, um, I don't know how to describe it, I'll leave you to describe it. Somebody who's, who, as a result of their action, someone dies, they're not going to be punished in a, in a based in, in a court of law, in a Jewish court of law, because they've not really done an Avera. However, somebody died as a result of their act. So what happens is that there is this concept that if you are the cause of someone else's death and you were negligent in that act, that members of the family can avenge the death. It's an extrajudicial killing. They can avenge the death of their family member. Did this ever happen? There's no record that it ever happened in Jewish history. However, merely the fact that your life is potentially in danger and that the person from the dead man or woman's family who wants to kill you would be innocent of your killing if they went ahead and killed you means that you need to go somewhere where you're going to be safe. You have sanctuary in a place called an Ir Miklot. Does it mean that anyone would kill you if you didn't go to the Ir Miklot? It's unlikely. It's possible, I guess. It's unlikely. However, merely the fact that you could be killed meant that you needed to go to an Ir Miklot. So if somebody's death was caused, if, for example, you were driving a car and texting while you were driving and somebody was run over and uh, killed as a result of what you were doing, you would go to an Ir Miklot. In the Ir Miklot, 
you would go in front of a based in and the based in would determine whether or not you are a killer or a, a manslaughterer. If you are somebody who is guilty of manslaughter, then you would stay in the Ir Miklot and you would need to remain within the city limits of the Ir Miklot, of the city of refuge, until such time as the high priest died. That, by the way, could happen a week later or it could happen 50 years later. You would be incarcerated, as it were. It's not house imprisonment, it's city imprisonment. You would be incarcerated within the city limits of the Ir Miklot until such time as the Kohen Godel died, after which, after which time you could go home and be safe, because if any of the family members wanted to kill you, they would then be guilty of murder. But in the interim period, before the Kohen Godel dies, and after you have been found guilty of manslaughter, you have to stay in the city of refuge in order to avoid the potential, your potential um, death, as a result of an act of revenge by a member of the person's family. That's what an Ir Miklot is. Where do we first come across it? Here at the end of Bamidbar, when the discussion um, arises about the uh, um, settlement of the plains of Moab by God and Reuven and half of Shevet Menashe, Moshe Rabbeinu is instructed by God to set up cities of refuge not only on the um, land of Canaan side, the Eretz Yisrael side of the Jordan River, but also on the east bank of the Jordan River, which is where the, these two and a half tribes were going to live. Let's look at the Gomorrah in Makkus that asks a very important question. The Gomorrah in Makkus, it's the Tess Omed Beis in the beginning of Yud Omed Aleph, Ton Rabbanon, the rabbis learnt as follows. Shalosh Orim Hivdil Moshe Be'ever Yadim. Moshe um, established, set up three cities across the Jordan River on the other side, not in Eretz Yisrael. And later on, much later, Joshua, many years later, set up three other cities, corresponding cities, on the other side of the Jordan River in Eretz Yisrael itself. Asks the Gemara a very good question. Why would you need three cities on the other side of the Jordan River? Be'eret Yisrael telas, it doesn't make any sense. The numbers don't make sense. Be'eva yarden telas, if you're going to put three on the other side of the Jordan River, not in Eretz Yisrael, then you'd have to put ten on the, or, or more, I don't know how many, because the division of the number of cities has to be corresponding to the number of Jews who are living on either side of the Jordan River. So if there's two and a half tribes and you need three, then if you've got, how many are left on the other side? It's, you're going to say nine and a half because there's 12 tribes. It's not, it's actually ten and a half because the tribe of Levi lived in Eretz Yisrael. So if you need three on one side, you need at least ten on the other side. So why is it the division three and three? The Gemara answers very curiously. In Gilad, which is the generic term that's used to describe the land on the other side of the Jordan River. I know that today it's known as Jordan. In those days it was known as Gilad, which was one particular location on the other side of the, of the Jordan River. It says, There were many murderers on the other side of the Jordan River, asks all the Mepharshim, all the commentaries ask, even if that it's true to say that there were more murderers, more killers on the other side of the Jordan River, 
how would that make any difference in terms of setting up cities of refuge? Makes no sense, right? Because the city of refuge was set up for manslaughterers, not for murderers. So if there's murderers on the other side of the Jordan River, maybe you need more courts of law, but you certainly don't need more cities of refuge. In the source sheet, I've given a number of answers. You can look at source number three. I'm not, I'm not going to go through them here, but if you look at source number three, it's online on the source sheet, and you can look at it here at the share. You can see there's various answers which are given. I have to say, none of them particularly satisfactory. This concept of is something that needs a lot of exploration. Having said that, now let's turn to the subject of the shear. So the subject of the shear is really this concept of Ari Miklot and the fact that the, um, the, uh, the Ari Miklot was set up by Moshe Rabbeinu even before, um, even before the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel, had settled in the land of Israel. So in Devarim it says as follows. So we've already heard what it says in, um, in our parsha, but in Devarim it says something else. I'm going to read you the psukim, and actually I'm going to go through a number of different psukim. We're going to see that the story is very confused and um, I'm very puzzling. Let's start with source number four. It's on page two. In Devarim chapter four, it's in Vaishanon. This is the place where Ore Miklot are mentioned again. At that point, Oz, that's what the word Oz means, Moses set apart three cities on the eastern side of the Jordan that the murderer who killed his neighbor unintentionally and did not hate him previously might flee there, and he may flee to one of these cities and live. What are the names of the cities? Betzer in the desert, in the flatlands for the Uvenites, and Ramot in Gilad for the Godites. So Gilad, you see here, is in the, is in the center. And Golan, you recognize that, in Bashan for the Menashites. So each of the three tribes on the other side of the Jordan River um, had their own city of refuge, which had been set up so that those who um, were engaged or had killed someone unintentionally but negligently might flee there in that event. Betzer, Ramot, and Golan. So the first question I want to ask you is as follows. The three Arimiklot on the east bank of the Jordan are useless until the other three Arimiklot are established west of the Jordan, right? So we know that none of the rules of Irmiklot applied until such time as you had all of them set up. Until all six were set up, none of the others were functional. They cannot serve as cities of refuge until the other cities are established. Now we know that Moshe Rabbeinu did not enter Eretz Yisrael. So why did he set up three Ari Miklot that had no significance? He can just teach them the law, like so many other laws that Moshe Rabbeinu taught. Just teach them the law that at some point you're going to need to establish three Ari Miklot on this side of the Jordan River. Why does he need to set them up himself? So Parshas Vo'eschanon presents us with the, as it were, the, the, it presents us kind of indicating this was the final situation that these cities had been set up. But it's not possible. They'd not been set up because 
they couldn't be set up until such time as Yehoshua set up the other three on the other side of the Jordan. So why did Moshe set them up? That's the first question we're going to be dealing with. Let's now look at Devarim. And I'm presenting here, in source number five, a series of psukim taken from chapter Gimel of Devarim and chapter Dalad of Devarim. And they're not, necess- they're not uh, you know, I'm missing a lot of psukim out. I'm just taking the ones that are relevant to the discussion that we're having today about Ne'er Miklot. In Vaishanon, the parasha Vaishanon, Vaishanon El Hashem, Moshe recalls pleading with God that he should be allowed to enter into Eretz Yisrael. Although, ultimately, God refused his request, as we're going to see in the psukim. Vaishanon El Hashem Ba'isaylemer, I pleaded with God at that time, saying, Hashem Elohim, I beg you, let me cross over and see the good land that is beyond the Jordan, the good mountain and the uh, uh, Levonoin. But God was angry with me because of you and he did not hear me. God said to me, enough, speak no more to me of this matter. Rav Loch, that's very important. Al Tosef Daber Eli Oid Badover Hazer. Basically, God said to Moses, "Don't talk about this anymore. You're wasting your time. I've made my decision. You're never going into Eretz Canaan. It's not happening. Let's talk about something else. Change the subject. Okay? So that's the beginning of Vayischanon. Exactly at this point, Moshe begins to prepare." Bnei Yisrael, the Jewish nation, to enter Eretz Yisrael. So once he knows that his own role has been, you know, his own ability to enter Eretz Yisrael is restricted, it's never going to happen, he now forgets that, he drops that subject, and God has told him to drop it, and now he um, begins the discussion with the nation about how they should behave and what should be done when they enter into the land. V'ato Yisrael, he says. And now, Israel. Shema el achukim vela mishpatim ashanichim elamet eschem lasois. Listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to do them, in order that you may live and go in and possess the land which God, the God of your fathers, is giving to you. Yirishdem esoaret asher Hashem elokei abayseichem noisein lochem. Continues Moshe. Vaatem hadveikim b'Hashem elokeichem chayim. And you who have cleaved to God, your God, are alive, every one of you, this day. Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments as God my master commanded me, that you should do so in the land which you are going to settle. Ushmartem va'asisem, and you shall keep them and you shall do them. Ki hi chochmaschem uvinaschem le'enei ho'amim. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the eyes of the nations. Asher yishmu'un eskola chukim o'ele, who when they shall hear all these statutes, va'omru they shall say, Am chochom v'novoin hagoi hagodol hazeh. Surely, this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So, 
Keeping the Torah is not simply about keeping the laws because this is the way you should conduct your life, but you are ambassadors for God and for the fact that the Torah is a source, a fount of wisdom and knowledge and greatness. And the nations will see how you behave and they will say, V'omru, Rak, as a result of the way you behave, they will have good things to say about you. Continues this, it's fascinating. So he has been refused entry into the land. And now he's dealing with the nation to tell them how they should behave in the land. In other words, he's taking the leadership role and he's preempting anything that may happen later on by telling them how they should behave when they get to Israel, even though he's not going to be there. These verses deal with strengthening and the uh, observance of Torah in direct contrast to the idolatrous practices of Baal Pa'or. Remember what's just happened at the end of Parshas Bolok and Pinchas and the story of Zimri and Cosby. The verse, Ushmartem v'asisem ki hi chachmaschem uvinaschem le'ineha'amim. And you shall keep and do them, for it is your wisdom and your understanding in the eyes of the nation, clearly refers to the Torah, right? I would say that if you're looking at that posuk, that the word he, it, refers to the Torah. Now this theme continues in posuk mem. Verse 40, it says as follows. And you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you this day. That it may be good for you and for your children after you, that you may prolong your days upon the land which God, your God, gives you for eternity. Now, are we all agreed that the theme here is that the Torah is the center of Jewish life and it's extremely important for the Jewish nation? both internally and for external purposes, for the impression they give to the world around them, to observe all the laws and statutes of the Torah, because that really is, the, is their mission when they become a nation in their own national homeland. Are we all agreed? Okay. Suddenly, there is a complete distraction, a digression, makes no sense at all. The very next verse changes the subject and talks about Ore Miklot, three psukim. Right? We said this before. Moshe set apart three cities on the eastern side of the Jordan, etc., etc., so that the murderer who killed his neighbor unintentionally, did not hate him previously, might flee there, he may flee to one of these cities, etc., and gives the names Betzer, Ramot, and Golan. What is it doing here? What is, the st- what is this concept, this idea? This project of building Ari Miklot got to do with observing the Torah when they get to Eretz Yisrael. It doesn't seem to have anything to do with it. Okay, so you say, okay, so it maybe he's just changed the subject and talking about something else. No, no, no. He comes back to the previous subject in the next Pasuk. Do you recognize that Pasuk? It's the Pasuk that we say. What, when do we say this Pasuk? When we pick up the Sefer Torah in Shul after laning. And we show the Sefer Torah, the, the writing of the Sefer Torah to the whole community. What do we say? This posuk, What? This about Ori Miklot? What are we talking about? We're talking about keeping all the mitzvahs? 
or are we talking about the fact that there is this mitzvah of Ir Miklot? What is this piece about Ir Miklot doing in the middle of this parsha? It's in the wrong place. I mean, it's very nice. We need to talk about it. It's a good thing that Moshe Rabbeinu established the cities of refuge. But what is it doing here? It doesn't make any sense in the context of the chapter in which it is placed. Why would the Arimiklot be placed in Moshe's address to the nation about the Torah? And then we are told, and this is the Torah which Moshe set before B'nai Israel. Which Torah? Is it cities of refuge? Is it the Torah as a whole? What are we talking about? Okay, that's the next question which we're going to deal with. Let's look at Rashi, because obviously Rashi is puzzled by the same thing that we're puzzled by. And he says as follows, So Rashi, conscious of the fact that this posuk of V'zois HaToyra cannot refer to Irmiklot, says actually this posuk doesn't refer to what comes before it, it refers to what comes after it. What comes afterwards? What comes immediately after the V'zois HaToyra? I mean, logically, it makes sense. The Ten Commandments. So if you look at the next, in the next piece, it's heading towards Moshe Rabbeinu discussing or repeating the Ten Commandments that were given on Mount Sinai. In reference to that, says Rashi, Moshe Rabbeinu says, But actually, it's not what comes afterwards. Because... The end of the parsha, that means chapter Dalad, Pasuk, Lamad Hey to Lamad Tes, we have a totally different piece. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments which Moshe spoke to Ben Israel when they came out of Egypt. On the east side of the Jordan, in the valley opposite Beis Pa'ar, in the land of Shtichon, king of the Amorites who ruled from Cheshbon whom Moshe and Bnei Yisrael defeated after they came out of Egypt, and they possessed his land and the land of Og, king of Bashan, where we, number page four, the Amorites who were on the eastern banks of the Jordan, from Ara'er, which is by the bank of Arnon River, to Mount Sion, which is Hermon, and all the floods, floodplains on the eastern side of the Jordan, to the Sea of Arova, under the rapids flowing from the cliff. Does that make sense to you? And now, what we're we talking about? Something else completely. We're not talking about the Ten Commandments. Then we get to the Ten Commandments. And then we get to the Ten Commandments. So actually, Rashi is a little misleading. He's saying that the Zois HaToyrah is referring to something that comes immediately afterwards, but it doesn't come immediately afterwards. Because what comes immediately afterwards is actually um, a summary of what had happened in the previous chapter, not what's going to happen in the next chapter. In the previous chapter, we've got this piece that deals with Moshe Rabbeinu on the east bank of the Jordan River, discussing aspects of what's going to happen once they come to Eretz Yisrael. And included among that is the establishment of three cities of refuge. So Rashi, I mean, I'm not questioning Rashi, and it makes sense on a very basic level, that he wants to turn this Pasuk of Vezois HaToyrah to be talking about the next chapter which mentions the Ten Commandments. But simply from a Pshat point of view, it doesn't make any sense. Rashi's explanation doesn't make sense. So we're going to have a question recap here. This is on page four. First question. The three are in Miklot on the east bank of the Jordan River. 
are useless until the other three Arimikla are established west of the Jordan. They cannot serve as cities of refuge until the other cities are established. Moshe did not enter Eretz Yisrael, so why did he establish three Arimiklot that had no significance? That's the first question. Why would he do something that was utterly pointless? The second question, why are the Arimiklot buried in the middle of a chapter with which they have absolutely no connection? Those two questions are what we're going to deal with. Okay, let's look at Rashi. Rashi, as you know, is always our first point of contact when we try and understand difficulties in the biblical narrative. Oz Yavdil, says Rashi. Then he established at that particular point, says Rashi, He set his heart to fear for this matter that he should set the cities apart. Why? And even though they would not receive killers, because they were cities of refuge, until those of the land of Canaan were set apart, Moshe said, a mitzvah that may be fulfilled, I will fulfill it. You know, we've got this principle. Mitzvah ha al I've spoken about this before. If you have the opportunity to do a mitzvah, don't waste a moment. Do that mitzvah right away. You know, the word tachmitzeno comes from the word chometz, right? What, what is chometz? Chometz is dough that has been left to rise. Don't let the dough rise. Get to it right away. Moshe Rabbeinu had an opportunity to set up the Oreb Miklot. He didn't wait for a minute. He did it right away. Says Rashi, that's why. He had an opportunity to do a mitzvah. He didn't leave it for Yehoshua to do it. He didn't leave it for a moment in time. When all six could be established together, he had the opportunity to set up three, so he set up three. But there's a problem. Is it a mitzvah to do a mitzvah that isn't a mitzvah? Do you get the question? But it's not really a mitzvah. A mitzvah is a mitzvah, right? I want to ask you a question. If I can shake a lulav, hadasim and arovas, but I don't have an estrog, do I make a bracha? Should I shake them? No, of course not. Because unless you have arba minim, you have no minim. You know, uh, you know sometimes it happens in the morning that we only have eight people or nine people instead of ten. Do we have a minion? No, we don't have a minion unless we have ten or more. That's the way it works. So Rashi's explanation of Moshe Rabbeinu's action, whilst it's very nice, needs to be unpacked. We need to understand what he's trying to tell us. So I'm going to look at the Kliyokar. In fact, I've translated the Kliyokar in full on page five. Let's look at that. This is source number nine. You've got the Hebrew if you want to go through it at the bottom of page four. But if you look at page five, I'm going to read through the translation. Oz Yavdil Moshe Sholosh Arim. Then Moshe set apart three cities. Regarding the connection of this verse to the previous matter, the commentators went out to gather explanations, yet they did not find a sufficing explanation. So the Kliyokar acknowledges that this concept of the Ore Miklot being plonked in the middle of a parsha with which they have zero connection is something that vexed commentaries and they all try to come up with an answer and they haven't found 
an answer which really makes much sense. Another question he adds to this is also, what is the terminology of then, Oz? It says, Oz Yavdil Moshe. What do you mean, Oz Yavdil Moshe? Then. When else should he do it? Yesterday? Tomorrow? Oz Yavdil Moshe. Just say, Vehivdil Moshe, Aremiklot. What do you mean, Oz Yavdil Moshe? Says the Kliyokar. And now, turn your ear and hear what that we have found that a person should begin a mitzvah even though he himself is unable to bring it to its conclusion. We're learning here, this is the source of a principle, a guiding principle in terms of how a person should conduct themselves in, the, um, uh, in doing a mitzvah, right? If you want to execute a mitzvah, this is the way to do it and this is the source. Despite this, a mitzvah that falls into his hand, he's obligated to fulfill it. Even though he is not able to do the mitzvah in its totality, nevertheless, he should do it to whatever level that he can do it, and that let someone else take it further. Your obligation is not necessarily to complete the mitzvah. Your obligation is to begin it and step that process down the road, and let someone else take up and pick up the baton at some stage. We find something similar with King David, who told his son Shlomo, and behold, this is a posuk in Divrei Hayomim. Um, let me see if I can find it here. And behold, in my affliction, I have prepared for the house of God gold. It's in Divrei Hayomim, Perik Chof says the Kliyokor, even though he knew that he would be unable to complete the mitzvah as he was not permitted to build the Beis HaMikdash. Remember, David HaMelech was prevented from building the Beis HaMikdash. He was considered an Ishmael Choma, and it wasn't appropriate for him. Somebody who had, as it were, even though he had no reason to, um, there was nothing wrong that he had done by being a man of war. He had blood on his hands. It's not appropriate for a house of God to be built by him or even through his efforts, he could not build the Beis HaMikdosh. Nevertheless, says the Kliyokor, he still began the mitzvah, knowing full well that would only be truly and aptly completed by his son. And here's a metaphor from the Kliyokor. An old man plants a tree for the estrig to be used for the mitzvah of Arbaminim. Even though he knows that he will be incapable of reaching this mitzvah, he won't be able to do it using the estrogim on that tree. But in any event, his children will be able to fulfill it. By the time the tree grows and the estrogs grow on the tree, he will be long gone, but his children will be able to fulfill it. And so too, there are many matters which can be found on this issue. And it's about this that the previous verse was stated. And you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you this day, that it may be good for you and for your children after you. That's what it says in the Pasuk. If you look at the Pasuk, we read it before. Um, just looking for it here, probably on page three. Here it is. So what does it mean? Says the Kliyokar, the mitzvahs that you do now, that you begin now, will be good for your children who live after you. The generations following you will benefit from your initiation of the mitzvah that took place in your lifetime. 
This indicates that if any mitzvah comes to your hands, you must fulfill it immediately, even though its true good and completion will not be apparent now, rather only when your sons after you will complete the mitzvah. In any event, do the mitzvah today. Don't worry. Don't think about the fact that you can't complete it. Immediately do it. Whether it may be good for you, that's wonderful if it's good for you, and you can complete it, or alternatively, it will be good for your children, acharecha. Right? It's not important when the mitzvah will be completed. Your duty is, I have the opportunity to start something off. You know, imagine if everything you did in your life, you only did if you knew 100% that you were able to complete it. You'd end up staying at home all day and doing nothing. The point is, if you do a mitzvah, make sure that you do the mitzvah, you begin it. You begin that process. You create the platform for the mitzvah to be completed. Either you will be able to complete it, but if you can't, someone will be able to complete it. There is a great benefit in beginning the process. And that is why the verse says, for your children after you. The word acharecha doesn't really make sense. Obviously, your children come after you. Yet it makes sense in, the light of the abo- in light of the above. In other words, the word acharecha is going on the mitzvah, not on the children. The mitzvah will be completed after you. And it is about this that it says, then Moshe set apart three cities. Even though they will not receive fleeing murderers until the three cities are set aside in Eretz Yisrael, Moshe still said, a mitzvah that comes to my hands, I will fulfill it. As Rashi says, we quoted Rashi, mitzvah she'efshen l'kayama akayameno. This mitzvah is not the mitzvah of completing the mitzvah. It's the mitzvah of initiating a mitzvah that may be completed later. And this is the terminology of then. That's why the word oz is used. When he taught Israel, the nation of Israel, this concept in the previous verse, he immediately acted oz on the spot, right then and there, in accordance with this halacha, in a similar situation, in order that they would observe him and act in the same manner with all of the Torah and its mitzvahs when it came to it. Therefore, it states, It's not going on the Aseris Adibra, says the Kliyokor. I know Rashi's lovely, but that's not what it's going on. This is the Torah that Moshe taught them. The mitzvah, um, that a mitzvah she'efshe l'kayama, akayameno, mitzvah bole yodcha, al tachmitseno. That's what Moshe Rabbeinu was teaching the Bnei Yisrael with this act. Immediately after telling them levonecha acharecha, he set aside three cities, and they questioned him, "Why are you doing that?" Well, they would have asked him right away. Why are you setting up cities if they're of no use to anyone at this stage? And he said his answer to them was mitzvah she'efshe l'kayama. A mitzvah that I can do now, I will be it now, even though it's, I'm leading up to you to complete it at a later date. And he added, This is the Torah. This is what Moshe Rabbeinu um, instructed them in at this stage, preparing them for the way they're going to conduct themselves in, in the observance of Torah when they reach Eretz Yisrael. So this is a beautiful kliyakar, um, and it explains the psukim, but it's obviously not pshat. It's a, a very nice interpretation. I'd like to go further into this subject, and I'm going to look now. It's very long. It's a number of pages. At... Um, if you look at the bottom of number five, we have bottom of number five, 
begins source number 10, and I'm going to look at this in greater detail. So, as you know, and I've discussed this already this year in previous Shurim this year about the end of Bamidbar and in, and in uh, Droshas that I've given, and I've also talked about it in previous years in Shurim that I've given about the end of um, Sefer Bamidbar, the book of Bamidbar, there's an important principle which really crystallizes around the settlement plans of God and Reuven and which sheds light on the parsha of Oz Yavdil Moshe and why it is located in its position in the Torah. So I want to really, the way I'm going to unpack this is by looking at um, Parshas Vo'ishanon to see a point that is repeated and reiterated a number of times. So I'd like really, in order to understand this whole piece about the Ari Miklot and about what was going on here, we're actually going to look at the Parsha in Dvarim, Parshas Vaishchanon, the second portion of Dvarim, where Ari Miklot are mentioned again. And through that, we're going to reach a conclusion about what was going on here at the end of Bamidbar and obviously for the whole of Dvarim. So let's look at it again. It's, we've already mentioned it. So okay. Now here, Israel, the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to do them in order that you may live and go in and possess the land which God, the Lord of your fathers, gives you. And you have cleaved to God. Your, your God are alive. Every one of you, this day, etc. Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, as God my master commanded me, that you should do so in the land where you are going to take possession of it. And you shall keep and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the eyes of nations, who, when they hear all these statutes, shall say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So what are we talking about? What is Moshe Rabbeinu trying to tell them? If you really want to find the focal point of this instruction for Moshe, Moshe was strongly emphasizing the concept of asiyah, doing, actions. It's not enough to know that there is a Torah. There's a theoretical Torah out there, which is a wonderful thing. What is the, how can the Torah be apparent and real if you're doing it? Asiyah. If you look at the words, first it says, Shema el achukim velamishpot mashanechim lamid eschem. Right? First you have to hear them. But why? Lasois. What's the lasois? Laman tichyu vasim virishtem esoritz. Again. Re'eli madati eschem chukumishpotim kashetivani ashem elokoi. Laasois. Cain. The care of oritz. It's not enough to hear the Torah to know that God taught these laws. It's all about lasois. You have to do them. Ushmartem. And you should um, observe them and do them. What's the he going on? What did we say before? The he is going on the Torah. No, no, it's not going on the Torah. It's going on the action. Do you know what's going to be really impressive for those who see you and observe you? If they see you doing it, not if they know that you represent it in some type of philosophical sense. There is a Torah which is a fount of knowledge and wisdom and greatness. That's not impressive. Do you know what's impressive? 
ועשיסם. ועשיסם כי היא חכמסכם ובינסכם לעיני העמים. And they will say, רק עם חכם ונובן הגוי הגודל הזה. As a result of that, that which you do as a result of you having the Torah, that is what's going to be impressive. Okay? So that is what Moshe Rabbeinu wants to say. Moshe says, לעשוס קיין בקרב הארץ. He adds, not good enough to do it. You have to do it בקרב הארץ. You should do so in the land. The essence of these actions, if you want to know what the Torah was written for, um, imagine you buy a new oven. Okay? That happens, right? We buy a new oven or buy a new car. And you want the instruction manual. And you get the instruction manual, and the instruction manual is for a different model of oven or a different model of car. Is it helpful? Well, I guess in some ways it could be helpful, because all cars have four wheels and a steering wheel, and all cars have a, um, you know, a gearbox, and all cars have um, an exhaust, and all cars have an engine, and in many respects, every engine is the same as every other engine. So, you know, there'll be things which are very, very similar. You know, when I rent a car, When I, when I travel um, out of town, I know that I need to have a key to turn on the ignition or some type of device to turn on the ignition. I turn it on and the pedals at the front of the car are the same as in the car that I drive at home. But ultimately, the instruction manual for my car is not going to be much use for a car that I drive somewhere else when it gets into the details. The Torah is a manual for Jewish life. But it's only ultimately useful in its totality, in one place and one place alone, and that is Eretz Yisrael. Because there's many aspects of the Torah which do not apply to any other place but the land of Israel. In which case, what is it that's important to realize, says Moshe Rabbeinu, and don't forget, he's speaking for himself because he has been denied the ability to do what he is now instructing the nation to do. Do you know what the greatest aspect of the Torah is? That you shall do so in the land. The essence of these actions is in the land of Israel. Moshe Rabbeinu is reminding the nation. He's not going to merit to do and perform mitzvahs in Eretz Yisrael. That possibility is out of, out of his realm, it's out of the question. God has said to him, don't talk to me about this again. But he makes sure that they know that it is the asiyah of these mitzvahs in Eretz Yisrael that is your wisdom and your understanding in the eyes of the nation. As they are about to enter into Eretz Yisrael, Moshe makes sure to teach B'nai Yisrael that loy ha-medrash hu ikar ela ha Remember something very, very important. Study is not the main thing. Deeds are. It's a Mishnah in Ovis. Look up the Mishnah. It's in Perik Aleph, Mishnah Yudzayin. Loi ha-medrashua ikar el ha This doesn't mean that study doesn't have value. That's not what it's talking about. The Mishnah doesn't say, don't study, just do. It says that study is not the main thing. Studying itself is not an end. In and of itself, it's not the end game. Nor is it the purpose of study. The essence of study is to act and perform deeds, even if studying itself has immense value. So you need to know that when you're learning and studying Torah, that it is only a platform for a greater thing, which is the acts that will follow. Godel Talmud Shemevi Lidei Maisa. 
Chazal teach us, Godal Talmud, greater is Talmud, learning, which brings one to Misa. Actually, it's interesting, this statement is a little bit misleading. Because if you look at the statement, before you look at the second half, you just look at the first half, it says Godal Talmud. Talmud is very great. But then the second part of the statement qualifies the first part. It says, God al Talmud, Talmud is very great. Do you know why? So learning is very, very important. Do you know why it's important? Because it brings you to do the act. Which means ultimately that the Maaseh, the doing, is greater than the Talmud. So even though it's phrased in such a way as to catch you out, what it actually means is that Maaseh is more important than Talmud. Truthfully, it makes no sense any other way. If you think about it, I mean, I, you don't need to be a great genius to work this one out. If you want to convince someone, for example, that Shabbos is a very special day, you know, you could use social arguments. I could tell people, you know, Shabbos, is, you really need a day of rest. It's really, really important to have a day of rest because it cleanses your mind. It gives you an opportunity to spend time with your family. gives you an opportunity to focus on your relationship with God. You could give people all kinds of rational arguments. Ultimately... There is no amount of rational arguments that will ever convince somebody how important Shabbos is until they've actually observed Shabbos themselves. Once you've experienced Shabbos, you don't need the arguments. So it's important to know about Shabbos and the underpinnings of Shabbos and the rationale behind Shabbos. But you know what's really important? To observe Shabbos. The absolute foundation, the fundament of Torah, is not the knowledge of what the Torah says, but its deeds and actions. So for example, the Rambam of Egypt might have understood the underlying concepts of Shabbos and its observance very differently from, let's say, the Vilnagon in Lithuania, who lived a few hundred years later. By the way, he differed in his understanding of Shabbos from the Ben Ishchai, who lived in Baghdad 100 or 150 years after he did, etc. The foundations, the common denominator, that unites the Rambam, the Ramban, Rabbi Yosef Karo, the Vilnagon, the Ben Ishchai, the Chofetz Chaim, everybody else, me and you, is that they all observed Shabbos. The eternal nature of Shabbos is the persistent theme of its observance throughout thousands of years of Jewish existence. Not the particular way it was observed in Egypt or Lithuania or Los Angeles or London or Yerushalayim. That's not, that's not what Shabbos is about. Do you know what Shabbos is about? That thousands of years, people, Jews, have observed Shabbos. Came Friday afternoon, they stopped whatever they were doing, and they embraced Shabbos until Saturday night when it went, became dark. That is the power of Shabbos. The act of observing Shabbos. Chochmaschem uvinaschem le'enei Your wisdom and your understanding is in the eyes of the nations when you observe it. What does that mean exactly? So I'm going to tell you something. You know, anybody who knows anything about Greek philosophy will know that Socrates was a very wise and very knowledgeable, highly intelligent Greek philosopher. Where do we find the wisdom of Socrates? Any of you have a, a book at home, The Wisdom of Socrates? Maybe if you studied it in university, you studied philosophy in university, you'll have it. But if you didn't study it in university, I mean, you could Google it. You may be able to buy one of those books on Amazon. But in practical terms, what does the wisdom of Socrates mean in your life? Plato, also a Greek philosopher, 
What happened to Plato? So too with countless savants, right? There's so many thousands of very brilliant people who've written brilliant books over um, countless centuries, etc., in every era, in every geographic location. All of them and their teachings have very little practical application or are remembered outside of textbooks because none of their lofty ideas were accompanied by deeds and actions that perpetuated them beyond their lifetimes. In other words, Plato and Socrates and everybody else had wonderful ideas and they're very thought-provoking and mind-expanding, but when it comes to the day-to-day -day life of a human being, they had very little practical application. The Torah has everything. It has knowledge and wisdom and practical application. Says the Torah, do you want to know how people will know that the Torah is great? is when you do the actions which are a reflection of the wisdom of the Torah. That's what Moshe Rabbeinu is teaching them. It's not enough to know that the Torah is a great book. It's a great book that has a practical application in everybody's day-to-day -day life in the Jewish world. Of course, studying Talmud is great, even if it doesn't lead to active conclusions. It's important to learn Gemara. But it is only eternal if it leads to mass, if it leads to actions. This, the action side of things, is the, is the Talmud which only really comes to life in Eretz Yisrael, the country where it becomes practical on a day-to-day -day basis. In Eretz Yisrael we engage with the questions of how society must be based on foundations of justice, how a fair judiciary is set up, how to work the land, in Eretz Yisrael, we can literally hear the voice of God calling us from every corner. Eretz Yisrael is the headquarters. It's the center. It's the beating heart of Judaism, of Jewish life. And that's what Moshe Rabbeinu is telling them. As a result of the regret that he feels that he has been prevented from going into Eretz Yisrael, he expresses to them this powerful idea that Eretz Yisrael is where it's at. And this is what Sefer Dvarim about, is about. This is, by the way, what the end of um, what the end of Bamidbar is about. You know, Moshe's great disappointment in the two and a half tribes who were settling on the other side of the Jordan River is that they will never experience this Eretz Yisrael experience. That's why he said to them, "You must be at the vanguard, at the forefront of the conquest." to take over Eretz Yisrael. You must be deeply involved in Eretz Yisrael, otherwise you're going to lose it. You remain here in Golis, you're never going to be part of the Jewish nation properly, profoundly. You're never going to internalize this lesson. And he now stresses the importance of establishing Are Miklot on the other side of the Jordan River. It's a reflection, as it were, of what's going to be happening in Eretz Yisrael itself. And by the way, you may need three not because you need three, not because there's more murderers on the other side of the Jordan River, but because you need this powerful mirror, this, this engine of Jewish life reflected wherever you are. The Gemara says in Megillah that every place that we establish a shul, it's as if we've established Jerusalem, we've consecrated Jerusalem in the diaspora. We have a mini Jerusalem in every synagogue. We call it a Mikdash Ma'at, a small temple as it were. Why? Because we need to have that feeling that there is an Eretz Yisrael. If all we are is talking about an Eretz Yisrael in theory, 
but actually it doesn't reflect in our day-to-day lives. If we're not saying, and we don't mean it, then really we've abandoned the core of Judaism. And this is what Sefer Dvarim is about. It focuses on deeds and actions, translating the lessons of the wilderness to the land of Israel. And this is why Dvarim opens like this. Look at the words. This is in the first chapter of Dvarim. Pasuk Vav and Pasuk Zayim. Hashem elokeinu diber eleinu b'choyer v'leimoyer. Rav lochem sheves b'hor hazeh. God our Lord spoke to us in Chorev and he said, You have remained near this mountain, mountain for too long. Rav lochem sheves b'hor hazeh. Penu usu lochem uvoy har ha'emoyri ve'el kol shecheno ba'arova b'hor uvashvelo v'negev v'v'choyf ha'yom eretz ha'knani v'alvonen ad ha'nahor ha'gadol nahar peros. Turn around and travel on. Go to the Amorite highlands and all its neighboring territories in the Aravad, the hill country, the lowlands, the Negev. Description of Eretz Yisrael here, it's beautiful, and the seashore. To the land of the Canaanites and to the Levonite, to the great river, to the Euphrates river. Go and expand your consciousness in the land of Canaan. And Rashi notes, he says, what are the words Rav Lochem? What does it mean, Rav Lochem? He says, Kipshutoi, it's its literal meaning. God tells the nation, it is too much for you, far too much. You've totally deadened your senses by being next to Harsinai. What are you talking about? Harsinai is the place we received the Torah. No, 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 get away from Harsinai. You've got to move on. You've been at Mount Sinai for far too long. Get away from there and go to the land of Israel. The Kliokar there explains that this is the root of the nation's problems. They had a love affair with Mount Sinai as opposed to Mount Moriah. Ultimately, our goal is to be at Temple Mount, not at Mount Sinai. By the way, that's why we don't know where Mount Sinai is. I know that people believe that they know where Mount Sinai is, but we have never celebrated Mount Sinai as the center of Jewish life. The center of Jewish life, and it's again described, it's a Gemara in Megillah, is the Holy of Holies on Temple Mount at the center of Jerusalem. In other words, there is a love for the Torah which only manifests itself in the base midrash um, that, can re- um, there is, uh, that can replace the love for the living Torah of Eretz Yisrael where the Torah is apparent and relevant in every part of life, public and private. The base midrash, the Har Sinai, is wonderful. It's mind-expanding. It's deeply inspiring, but it's never going to match up to what it means to appreciate the practice, the deeds, the masse, the asiyah of Eretz Yisrael. We'll leave it here today.